The future of Bangladesh depends on people like you. We are a group of friends who left Dhaka in the early 80s and been working in strategic consulting, international development, diplomatic services, and even one of us built a very large business. Now we want to bring something back to Bangladesh. We want to bring through this platform, through this podcast, our network, our knowledge, and work with you together to shape the future of Bangladesh. Welcome back to this second episode with Dr. Michael Friedman. Today, Sam Samdani and me, Sohel Hasni, we discuss how to stay informed on coronavirus and steer clear of unnecessary fear and anxiety. Let's welcome Michael. My next question, Michael, would be around how you keep current. For our audience, there are probably two different kinds, which I would describe one kind would be, you know, not experts themselves, but they want to stay safe and healthy, everyday folks. The others would be the experts. How do you stay current with what's our understanding as it is evolving? How do you do that as an expert? And what advice would you give to our audience who are not experts, but they need to stay current? So, so this is this is a really good question and a really challenging one because there's so much information coming out about COVID. And, you know, let's be honest, we also live in a time where there's a tremendous amount of information overload in general. So this is something that everyone who, who, who is a physician or anyone who's an epidemiologist or other scientist is constantly dealing with, whether it was before COVID or, or during COVID, we're always struggling with this idea of how to keep current with COVID. It's extremely important because the science is changing and evolving. So the, the, the first thing is I think people need to have a motivation. I, I think that what I see here in Bangladesh is unfortunately that drive to keep current is not as strong as it should be. And I think that, that we really, really need to emphasize to the people that are making policy decisions and, and people that are sort of so-called experts is that you've got to dedicate certain hours a day to reading and to, and to listening and thinking about this problem. And that's not easy to do. Everyone's super busy. They're running from meeting to meeting and to issue to issue. And, you know, finding time to do that is really challenging. Now, how do you actually do it? How do I actually do it? I have a, I have some, you know, benefits that other people don't. I work for CDC. So I get flooded with emails every day of all kinds of information that CDC wants to provide to me as a country director. Most of it I highly, highly appreciate. And sometimes it gets to be too much. Uh, I get too many emails with too many different guidelines and updates and everything. So you learn a little bit over time which ones to read and which ones to ignore. I also get invited to a lot of uh, sessions, interactive you know, presentation sessions and other things now, mostly over Zoom or other software packages that give me updates and allow me to interact with some of my colleagues from other countries. These, again, usually are very helpful. Sometimes they are a little too generic or they're focused on a situation, for example, in the U.S. that isn't necessarily applicable to what we're experiencing here in Bangladesh. But in general, those, those also tend to be helpful. But sometimes I can't join. I'm just too busy and I just don't. I miss, I miss sometimes ones that I wish I could have joined and learned something from. I just don't get the chance to. The third place I go is the medical journals. I, I really do enjoy and value the information you gain from reading something in a, in a high-level journal. 
because there is a certain amount of trust and vetting of the information that usually happens. I know we had an experience about a month ago where that wasn't necessarily true, but still overall in the big picture, this is a really valuable source of information for someone like me who can read the information, understand it, and critique it. You know, I, I know what the limits and the, and the benefits of a given study might be. So I, I really do value reading these studies or getting a synopsis of these studies. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast or I'll get things sent to me that, that give a, a quick summary of like five different studies that happened this week. So those are also very, very useful. I think the last thing that could be very useful is talking to other colleagues and people that are in similar situations to you. So if you have a team approach, you could divide and conquer a little bit. You could ask team members to read different articles and you could, uh, or, or different subjects, and you could try to share and learn from each other. We have a relatively small team, CDC team here in Bangladesh. So it's a little bit more difficult for us here in Bangladesh, but in a, in a lot of places in CDC, it's certainly at CDC headquarters in Atlanta, that definitely happens. You know, the lab people keep up on what's happening with testing, new testing procedures and the epidemiologists keep up on new concepts of, of design and surveillance and and the medical people are keeping up on the latest in treatments and stuff so we we divide and conquer a little bit as well me as a country director i kind of need to learn all of it which makes it a little bit hard so anyway that's that's kind of yep. what i do absolutely oh, no i love sorry. this team approach <laughs> sorry there's as one well. other thing i have the one other thing I have to say, I also get a lot of my information from my wife. So I, I have to give a shout out to my wife, who's, I told you, infectious disease expert in Singapore, National University in Singapore. So, of course, I talk to her almost every day. And, you know, we don't always talk about COVID, but occasionally we do. And so we, she's very, very helpful in, in sharing the latest information that she's learning in Singapore. Love it. On that point, by the way, I see my family members in Bangladesh also, you know, different family members would be focusing on different areas. How do you advise people not to pay too much attention to all these conspiracy theories and the like that sort of float around in the social media in particular? Any advice as to how to detect them and how to steer clear of them? You mean those conspiracy theories aren't true? <laughs> right, exactly. How do you how do you detect the hints of conspiracy theories? They try to find somebody to blame for this or you know, some kind of a malicious intent by somebody. How do you advise people to detect those things and say, okay, come down and and pay attention to the facts and what we can do with the facts? Yeah, so I mean my first approach with these with this these kind of issues is number one is I think we all have to understand, you know, human behavior and and human psychology and you know people are always looking for an explanation that puts this disease and what they're experiencing in with their view of the world and stuff so you know as as a one thing i've learned over the years as a, as a physician as well as a public health you know epidemiologist is that you know people will interpret experiences and information in their own way everyone is filtering things and we just have to kind of accept that to some degree that you know we as human beings are imperfect and then we we have this filtering device and we will take two different experiences and two people will see something different out of it and so conspiracy theories is just one extreme of that where 
I think, you know, people are looking for an answer that kind of fits their, their idea of the world and this virus and, and they hear something and they want to latch on to that. Now, that doesn't make it acceptable. It doesn't mean we should just accept that and go on. But it does mean that, you know, you got to kind of realize that when we're trying to convince people that these things aren't true, that you have to understand their underlying belief and their under, underlying issues. And so, you know, the, the best thing we, we can do with that is to, you know, try to understand the, the person that's looking at this information and try to, on an individual level, you know, try to address those persons' fears or misconceptions, you know, one at a time. That's easier said than done, but that's kind of what you have to do. At a, at a kind of a public level or a media level, I think that that's a big challenge. I mean, fake news is a big issue. We have a lot of reports and people saying things that without a lot of evidence, and, and that often happens too, and, and, and uh, people get away with it today because there's so much media and there's so many different channels of, of speaking that not all of them can be you know, vetted and, and, and scrutinized and watched so closely. So you know, as a public health person, all we can try to do is try to keep our messages as clear and as honest as possible so that when we speak, it sounds like for most people will listen to what we say and think, you know, this person sounds like they're making a lot of sense and will then, you know, trust us more than they trust the different source. So it's really all at the end of the day, it's really about trust and, and credibility. And you just have to try to make yourself credible and trustworthy. And uh, fortunately, I work for CDC, which I think has a generally a very trustworthy and credible reputation. So that really does help my job. But, you know, in, in a place like Bangladesh, it's tough. We hear a lot of rumors and, and there's a lot of hearsay about different treatments and different ways this thing is spreading and what's happening, you know, in terms of government policy. And those things are, are you know, difficult to stop the rumors. It's not, it's really not easy. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the vulnerability of people who do not question what they're hearing from different sources and the motivation to cross-check things to see, you know, where things are converging in terms of evidence. Next area that we'd love to explore with you, given your background, would be, you know, tracing, tracking approaches to minimize or prevent the spread of the virus. What can we as individuals do and policymakers do in Bangladesh? So let's address both of these as individual as well as collective response to tracking and tracing and monitoring uh, the spread of the virus. So I think this is something that we really need to better understand. You know, the policymakers and others really need to fully understand and, and realize the limitations, the benefits and limitations of contact tracing. So just first of all, for your audience, those that don't understand, contact tracing is, a, is an idea that if we can identify the people that have been exposed to the virus before they get sick and we, and we isolate them, we are then able to stop them from spreading it, the next generation of people infected, we can stop that next generation from happening. So, you know, in order to make this effective, number one, you've got to identify the cases that are sick. You've got to identify who their contacts are, the people that they may have exposed. You've got to then be able to find those people and quarantine them or isolate them. And you have to do all of this in a time frame before they're able to then expose other people. 
Otherwise, obviously, you've missed the boat and they've already exposed people and it's too late. All your efforts then go kind of in vain. So you, you need to do this. And the last thing you have to do, of course, is you have to do this in enough of a scale that at least 50 or 60 percent of the cases that you're that are there are going through this kind of system so that you can really make a serious dent in the in the reproduction rate or the, you know, the spread of the virus. If you do this and you're only capturing five or 10 percent of cases, your impact is going to be obviously very small. The most impact you're going to have is a five or 10 percent impact, even with all that effort. So it really depends on all of these kind of factors. The other thing to remember is we contact tracing has become very popular as a term, mainly because of Ebola and some other diseases like SARS. So in the recent past, we've used contact tracing a lot as a way to, to, to try to slow down a disease like the two I just mentioned. But we also have to realize that for some diseases, it doesn't work. Contact tracing is just too slow or too inefficient to really make a difference. An example of that is measles. Measles is highly, highly contagious. By the time you figure out who has got the disease, it's already spread to the next people. And by the time you find those other people, they've already spread it to other people. So generally with measles, it's completely a waste of time to try to do contact tracing. It's a disease where instead we focus on vaccination. And often we try to vaccinate people ahead of where the cases are now. So if you're in a village now and there's a lot of measles cases, we will go to the next village and try to vaccinate everyone so that by the time the virus gets to that village, the people there are no longer susceptible. Now, of course, with coronavirus, this COVID, we don't have a vaccine, so we can't do that. So one of the, one of the measures we have is this contact tracing. And contact tracing can be very effective for COVID if two things have to happen. Number one, it has to be relatively early in the outbreak. So the later it is in the outbreak, the more cases there are, the more difficult it is to do contact tracing. And number two is you've got to have a strong enough system, including a number of contact tracers and good laboratory testing, quick, quick laboratory testing too, good information systems to capture all the data and to follow things. You have to have all those systems in place in order to make it work. So in Bangladesh, when we were early in the outbreak, in the first month or so, say in March and early April, contact tracing was a, a very important part of our strategy. I would say now that we're in July and we have over 3,000 confirmed cases every single day, we probably have many, many, many more times that actually in real life. I think the idea of contact tracing at this stage is very, very incomplete and, very, and it's going to have a very minimal impact on the spread in a place like Dhaka or other places where there's already a lot of transmission. If we go to a rural community in Bangladesh that has very few cases, then contact tracing still, I think, can be very effective. But again, you have to have the systems in place. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yep, very helpful. On a related area, to the extent you have a view on this, Michael, would be modeling, you know, epidemiologic or any other kind of modeling that is done to anticipate what's likely to happen, where the virus is likely to erupt, how are we doing in Bangladesh and could we do things better? What would be the approaches on modeling front? So modeling has been a, a fascinating, I think, I think this, this, this crisis has brought modeling to the forefront of public health and policy making more so than, in, than we have at any point recently, I think. I mean, maybe other fields like economists and others who use modeling all the time, but 
in public health, this has been a tool that's been kind of underused in the past. And now we're really, because of this COVID crisis, I think you're seeing a lot of modeling efforts. And I think that's an indication of better modeling and more, you know, more mathematicians and other uh, statistical scientists going into the field. And of course, because of the, the, the severity and the complexity of this, this pandemic, we're seeing a lot of this. In terms of how effective all this modeling has been, I think it depends a little bit on your perspective on what you expected the modeling to do. If you expected the modeling to give you perfect estimates and to really predict exactly what was going to happen, then the answer is the modeling hasn't been that great and hasn't been that effective. If the modeling was there to give you a general idea of what might happen and to warn people of, of the potential severity of this crisis, then the modeling was very effective in terms of doing that. So this is a real, you know, I, I think this is an area that is important, but I you know, obviously we have to also understand that modeling has a lot of limitations to it. And that is that we, you know, what we, we can only create models for what we know about the disease and, and what we know about the transmission and the behaviors on the ground. And so if you incompletely know all that information, then it's really difficult to know, you know, how the models are really going to work in, in compared to real life. So an example of that is here in Bangladesh. I think that you know, there was a certain prediction about the spread of the virus if, if we did nothing. And then you have something like a shutdown or what they call the government holiday that happened at the end of March that lasted about five, six weeks and, and in some ways lasted longer than that, but, but not completely. And, you know, one of the things the modelers could look at was, okay, well, what if you shut everything down? You know, how would that affect the, the, the curve? But what the modelers aren't able to do is to really be able to understand, well, how effective is the shutdown? You know, how much are people really following that advice? You know, geographically, to what degree is it going to spread based on inter intercity travel? And, and are people traveling outside between Dhaka and the outside, you know, rural villages or not? All of these questions are things that the you know, modelers, are, it's very, very difficult to, for the modelers to get all these things correct. And then there's other really nuanced factors, things like, you know, spread between low-risk people and high-risk people. So, you know, factoring in, for example, the idea that maybe elderly are better at shielding themselves from this virus than younger people are. So, you know, modelers may look at everyone's risk the same, but it's actually you, know, you might have little micro-populations that have different risks and how that affects you know, the spread of the disease and not only the spread, but the case fatality rates and the hospitalization rates are all going to be based on which, which micro population is getting infected. So if you end up not closing schools and you get a bunch of students and college students and others getting sick, the numbers are going to look very high, but you're probably going to end up with very few hospitalizations and very few deaths because it's a very young, healthy population. But if you have a micro population of nursing home, uh, residents, you're going to have a very completely different scenario. So th that's why I think all of these things, when we talk about these models, they're very, very broad and they're very, they're very generic. They don't really get into those kind of details. Indeed. The key word you pick, I pick up is scenario, you know, different scenarios coming up from different models for the different assumptions they have. How do you go about communicating in a way that you don't scare people that there could be an extreme scenario that, you know, is not likely to happen, 
but it's out there unless people do things differently. You know, there the scenario could be, you know, materialized or realized if, you know, people do not follow what they're supposed to do. How do you communicate that? Any any guidance for both our policymakers and as well as individuals so we communicate all the different scenarios that come out of modeling? Yeah, so I would say that it really depends on where you are in the in the crisis. You know, to me, this is a really important point that people often forget is that, you know, what we're saying today now in July is very different than what I might be saying in the middle of March or what I was saying in the first week of April. Because, we're, you know, the public is at a different point. Our understanding is at a different point. We have, you know, maybe our response systems and, and capacity is at a different point. So, you know, those messages need to be tailored to where you are in the crisis. And so, for example, at this stage in the pandemic, I think there's a real challenge of fatigue. People are getting very tired of this pandemic, naturally. I think we all are. And yet that the, the virus isn't listening to us. The virus isn't like, okay, well, let's give these humans a break. I mean, the virus is, is moving along the way it wants to move along. But we, in terms of changing people's behaviors or motivating them, we have to factor in this fatigue factor. We, we just have to. Otherwise, you know, I think our messages are going to come across as insincere or, or insensitive to the way people are feeling. So this is just one example where I think we need to kind of couch our messages in, in the reality of things. The other thing is that besides fatigue, there's also the idea that people have now had experience with this virus for a couple of months. So people are starting to generate their own opinions about how bad or how not bad this virus is. And so before in March or in April, I could say whatever and everyone would believe me. You know, I could say, oh, this is the world's worst virus ever. And everyone would say, okay, you know, or I could say, don't worry about the virus. It's not that bad. And most people would agree with me. But now four months or three months into this thing, more than four months, if we consider the time period in China and other countries, now people are, are saying, wait a minute, I've been reading the newspaper. I've been watching what's happening on TV. I know what's happened with my friends and my relatives, this is what I think about the virus. And so now you've got that layer of complexity that you have to deal with. So if they really are scared of the virus and your message is to be careful, then that's great. It makes your messaging easier. And you have to just remind them of the behaviors. You have to remind them of the, the latest findings. You have to maybe even calm their fears down a little bit. If there's someone who says, you know, I've been watching, I've had 10 of my friends have this, and none of them have gotten sick, I think this virus is no worse than the flu, and everything is fine, you know, and my message is different, then I have to really work on that. I really have to kind of explain to people that just because you had a certain experience doesn't mean that's what the experience everyone is having, and that, you know, you have to look beyond just your your own circle and, and understand the risks and stuff. So, you know, I think these messages at this stage in the epidemic, get a little bit complicated because you, do, you have these different camps of people. You have, you have certain young people now that are saying, you know, we need to get back to work. We're tired of this. It's not that bad in young people. You know, I'm willing to take a risk and I want to, you know, I want to go on with my life. And then you've got other people that are like still completely scared of this virus and say, no, 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 don't. This virus is deadly and it's, it's killing too many people. And we need to stay indoors and, you know, and not open our shops and not do anything. So you've got people at both ends of the spectrums in terms of this, this situation. And, and that makes it challenging because it's hard to get a consensus. 
I hope you enjoyed today's show. See you next time on a similar topic. Please feel free to leave your comments behind and suggestion what topic we might cover next. Thank you.